Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. In a moment of great danger to British national survival, Winston Churchill speaking on the 18th of June, 1940, just over a month after he took over as Prime Minister. Within another month, the Royal Air Force was defending the United Kingdom against large-scale attacks by the Luftwaffe. So how did the Battle of Britain play out? What was Germany's objective? And how important was the battle in the whole direction of the Second World War? To ask the big questions about this seminal moment in British history, Charlie Mills has been speaking to Dr. Mario Draper at the University of Kent. This is How and Why History. Mario, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. When was the Battle of Britain and who was involved? Well, the Battle of Britain, easily, we can summarise it as being the summer of 1940, but... As with all things in history, there's a huge amount of debate over exactly when it began and when it ended. So you've got some people who suggest that the Battle of Britain started as early as July 1940, with the first incursions of German fighter planes coming over from France. Others date it actually to being more like August, and the same with its conclusion. You know, some people would suggest that it runs only till September, others would take it all the way through to November. So it's a bit difficult to say, but you know, if we want to talk about the real apex of the battle, we're talking about the last week of August and the first week of September. But the summer of 1940 will cover it. So who was involved? You've got the German Luftwaffe 
ostensibly, so the German Air Force, which is commanded by Hermann Goering on one side, and then you've got the British RAF on the other. Now, the RAF, actually, of the 3,000 or so pilots, that the few, as Winston Churchill would call them, that took to the skies, quite a few are from outside of mainland Britain. So you've got a lot of pilots coming over from the colonies, the empire, in particular Antipodes, Southern Africa, but also you've got pilots from occupied Europe. So you've got Polish pilots, Czech pilots, Belgians, Dutch. There's even records of a couple of American pilots coming over and a couple of pilots from Ireland, both of which were neutral during the war. So the RAF, as much as it's a British force, is actually quite an international force as well. How did they compare? So they're two very different beasts. They're designed to do different things. So if you go back to the interwar period and what both Germany and Britain are looking for their air forces to do, this affects how they're put together. So for the German army, the air force is seen as an adjunct to it, right? So what the air force is going to bring to it is close air support for their ground forces in any future operation. So this means that they've got obviously some fighters, as you would imagine, but a lot of their bombers are short to medium range, quite light aircraft, right? They don't foresee in the future particularly the need for big four-engined heavy bombers to go and do massive strategic bombing raids. It's all very tactical at the low level to help the ground forces. On the other hand, the British in the interwar period there, the RAF is struggling, much like the tank corps, to establish itself, to work out what its role is going to be in the future of the British armed forces. So they have to justify themselves. And the easiest way to do this in an era of colonial policing, which is effectively what the British Army is doing in the, the 1920s and 1930s, is to say that they can be a cost-saving measure. What they can offer is control of vast swathes of empire at very low cost, and therefore freeing up boots on the ground, which are much more costly. So they go down a sort of different route in order to justify themselves. And this leads almost to them being behind the curve by the time 1935, 1936 rolls around. By the time they really realize what the German army is up to with its rearmament, suddenly there's a big shift in policy and they realize that they can't just get away with old crates, you know, these biplanes or anything like that. They have to modernize and they have to modernize quickly. So from 1936 onwards, you see the creation of, of the RAF as we know it come the Battle of Britain. With these fighters, particularly the Hurricanes and the, and the Spitfires, that's all part of a construction program from 1936 onwards to modernize the RAF. So these are the two forces that end up fighting each other and because of the way they're put together actually it has a huge bearing on the outcome of the Battle of Britain itself. What were the Germans primary objectives here? So ultimately what they wanted to do was to clear the airspace above Britain and the Channel to facilitate a seaborne invasion. So having got rid of the French army in May and June 1940, the Low Countries having invaded through there very successfully pushed the British army off the continent. As a result, the next step was either to treat with Britain and to get it to come to some sort of peace terms, or failing that, to launch an invasion. So this is Operation Sea Lion, famous, but famous for all the wrong reasons from a German perspective, because it never actually gets off the ground. It's suspended come mid-September 1940, partially because the Luftwaffe doesn't really manage to secure its ultimate objective, which was to destroy the RAF and get air supremacy to facilitate that invasion. Where in particular was targeted and how did Britain respond to that? The targets were the aircraft and the airfields, the infrastructure effectively of the RAF, because if you get rid of those, then you dominate the skies. If you dominate the skies, you free yourself up to operate on land much more freely. And as we've already seen, the links between the German Air Force and the German Army meant that 
they had to have air supremacy in order to effectively pursue land operations. So they target airfields in particular at the start, and they also target factories to try and disrupt production. But this doesn't really work hugely. The Germans really start to overestimate the damage that they're doing. They don't really realize that what British are doing with their factories is they're moving various bits of plant around, they're making sure that if a factory is hit, not the entire production line goes down in one go. So what you see under Lord Beaverbrook at the Ministry of Aircraft Production is actually a fantastically worked organization of men and women up and down the country that are able to respond to what the Germans are trying to do here in destroying the actual machinery of the RAF. And they end up actually increasing their production numbers despite being under attack. So I've got a few numbers here for you. So in terms of the output of fighters, in April 1940, production was 256. This rose to 325 in May, 446 in June, 496 in July, and then once the Battle of Britain gets started, 476 in August and 467 in September. So that's an increase. And then once things get tough, they're maintaining quite a high level of production. So the response from Britain is phenomenal, really, given the pressures that they're under. When this battle comes about, how long did it last? It's really difficult for historians to pinpoint an exact start and end date because Ultimately, the Battle of Britain morphs into the Battle for London, morphs into the Blitz, and morphs into the bombing raids that persist throughout the war. So there's no real clear cutoff. Like I say, the real apex of the Battle of Britain proper is the last week of August, first week of September. What happens beyond the first week of September is all of a sudden a diversification of German strategic aims. So instead of targeting, say, British airfields, British factories, and also things like Britain's radar system, which had they destroyed you know, more effectively, would have made fighter command's ability to respond to German threat much more difficult. They start to target cities. They start to target London in particular. Now, Hitler is at the forefront of this decision. It's a response to a British raid on Berlin in late August. So Hitler had promised the German people that no bomber would ever get through and threaten Berlin. So the fact that it does is a big shock to the Third Reich and Hitler has to respond in kind and goes down this route then of targeting cities, targeting the population, the morale of the people rather than the fighter planes, the pilots, the radar system, the thing that that's actually keeping the Luftwaffe at bay. So, you know, if we're talking about an end date to the Battle of Britain proper, maybe that switch to targeting cities is where we can date it, which is somewhere in and around the middle of September. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But can you kind of put your finger on essentially why the Germans failed? Why didn't they succeed? Like I say, it's, it's the ever-shifting goalposts. I think the strategic aims, the lack of direction, the differences of opinion between Goering, between Hitler, between all sorts of military advisers as to what exactly they're trying to achieve here. So the targeting of London, all well and good if you can break civilian morale quickly and force the civilians to force their government to sue for peace, which if you look into war theory about bombing, where aircraft are going to go and, and what role they're going to play in the future, this is seen as a real possibility. You'd seen this in the Spanish Civil War, Guernica in northern Spain with the bombing there. You know, there's a real fear amongst the population at large that they are going to become legitimate targets and therefore force their governments to sue for peace. So in a sense, you, know, you can understand why the Germans went down that route. But on the other hand, their failure to completely eradicate the RAF and therefore their inability to control the skies meant that they couldn't really launch Operation Sea Lion. So their ultimate objective, what they started the Battle of Britain for, they fail. And just to come back to a point I raised earlier about the composition of the air forces, another reason why this doesn't really work, the shift to strategic bombing, is that the German air force, the Luftwaffe, is not designed for it. What they're actually designed to do is to support the army in ground operations, right, in, in tactical ground operations. What they're not designed to do is to carry heavy bomb loads over big cities and to cause mass devastation like that. Pilots aren't really trained for it, the aircraft aren't suitable for it, a lot of them are too slow. So even though you've got very good fighter planes in the ME-109, they're not put to good use because they have to fly alongside these really slow plodding bombers with light payloads and it makes it relatively simple for fighter command to stop this. So I think those kind of combination of reasons, a lack of proper strategic direction, and also the fact that the Luftwaffe isn't really designed for the task that it ends up having to perform. Germany's morning hit in this war takes the form of massed aerial attacks on the defences of London. So this is now a familiar sight and a familiar sound. But in spite of the number of Nazi planes, the whole nation has complete confidence in our own fighters. And with good reason, our hurricanes and spitfires day after day are breaking up the Nazi formations and shooting down Nazi planes by the score. What impact did Britain's victory have on global opinion? Well, I think it's a shot in the arm, really, a positive shot in the arm, at a time when continental Europe has largely fallen. So apart from neutral states, the only two real big players left to face off against Germany, the Soviet Union and Britain. And Britain itself has been forced off the continent. So it's been forced out of Belgium and France. It's also been forced out of Norway. And all of a sudden, right, you get this victory, a defensive victory, right? So it's, it's not, you know, the British are very good, aren't they, at defensive victories and making things look great. You know, they'd done it previously with Operation Dynamo and, and getting the army off the beaches at Dunkirk. But this really was a demonstration that Britain wasn't quite down and out. So in terms of public opinion abroad, be it in occupied Europe, be it further afield like neutral America, something like this, new prime minister in Winston Churchill, a victory over the skies of mainland Britain, thwarting an invasion. Not only does that do wonders for morale at home, but actually shows the world that Britain's still very much in the game. It's kind of difficult to hypothesise, but how might things have been different had Germany have won the Battle of Britain? 
difficult to say, really. It's a counterfactual question, but an interesting one. I think we have to put the Battle of Britain into perspective. It was a defensive victory, not an offensive victory. It doesn't win the war there and then. What it does do is create the conditions for the war to be won down the line. So we're looking three, four years later when the consequences of not capitulating actually bears fruit. So in the short and medium term, it keeps Britain in the war. Therefore, it can keep fighting in the Italians, say, in North Africa, in the Mediterranean, which, by the way, is Britain's primary theater for the first half of the war until the Americans come over. It's only in 1943 that they agree that Northwestern Europe is a front that they really should be concentrating on. So it allows Britain to, to do that because Britain ultimately wants to protect Suez and their links to empire. So they've got an army in, in North Africa fighting the Italians to do that. But also what it allows them to do is it allows them to keep the Royal Navy operational. And the Royal Navy keeping open the sea lanes, keeping open connections with empire, with America, you know, as soon as Lend-Lease comes into effect and they're getting loads of equipment being shipped over, the fact that Britain isn't down and out, that you know, the Royal Navy is still operational, that there are still British armies fighting elsewhere in the world, creates the conditions for a victory later in the war. So had Germany won the Battle of Britain, you might argue that things could have been different, that actually it would have prevented them from having to fight a multi-front war, that they could have directed their attention immediately to the Soviet Union had they wanted to and not had to worry about the thorn in their side that was Britain. So longer term, Battle of Britain has a big effect. When we look at today, why is this particular battle so widely remembered? I think it's got an element of glory and heroism attached to it, doesn't it? If you think about where warfare has gone in the 20th century, a lot of it actually has taken away the agency from the individual. If you think about being in the trenches in the First World War, or even just on the battlefields of France in 1940, for instance, there's a sense as an infantryman that you can be killed by a bullet or a shell or a bomb from the air, and there's not much you can do about it. You don't really have control over that. Sometimes you can't even see where this has come from. What the Battle of Britain does is it allows individuals to get into planes and to fight against individuals, right? Where they've got sole control over their own personal destiny. So you get lots of these individual stories of heroism, you know, this kind of old chivalric nature of, of fighting, of man against man, irrespective of the fact that, that weaponry has advanced so much. And I think that's, that's quite appealing to a public. They can identify with that. I think also the fact that it's fought over Britain itself, over mainland Britain, adds a lot of value to it as well, because Britain very famously has not been successfully invaded very often. The last real successful invasion was 1066, as far as the British were concerned. So throughout their, their long history, there have always been these threats of invasion, and the British people have always rallied and you know, raised local armies, be it the volunteers in the 19th century, in the Napoleonic Wars even, or the Home Guard in 1940 to resist invasion. This is actually, they're watching it happen above them in the skies. The British Air Force, the RAF, defeating the Luftwaffe to protect mainland Britain. That plays a big part in, in propaganda and public opinion. And then leading on from that, the population as a whole gets to be part of that because they become the targets themselves as this morphs into Battle of, of London and also then into the Blitz. And their stoicism, you know, this kind of Blitz spirit that people talk about, which, you know, maybe we should just qualify a little bit, it's not all everyone pulling in, in the same direction quite like you want to imagine. You know, there's, there's huge kind of spikes in crime and, and all sorts through you know, the blackout because it allows criminals to kind of go about undetected. But, you know, by and large, it allows people to be part 
of this greater narrative that's happening. And then you move into more modern times, it's, it's had a huge influence on popular culture and, and film and media and all that sort of stuff. Again, there's something noble and heroic about the story of the fighter race. So you get Michael Caine in his 1969 film, probably the most famous, 50 years old now, but that's shown almost every year, isn't it, on TV? But there are others as well. Kenneth Moore is in the Reach for the Sky film, 1956, where he plays group captain Douglas Bader with tin legs. So all these things kind of come together to idealize what the nature of the fighting was like over the Battle of Britain. And the fact, like I say, that it happened over the White Cliffs of Dover, it's very evocative. I think that strikes a real chord with the public all the way through to the present day. What was the nature of the fighting in the air? Very chaotic in many ways. So you've got huge areas to cover, very small machinery up there. Obviously quite easy for Fighter Command to identify big bombing raids coming in through their radar system. They could deploy fighter squadrons fairly accurately, fairly quickly from across the country. But once these guys are in the air, things become very difficult to identify, very difficult to locate exactly who and where the enemy is. So when fighter squadron comes up against a bombing raid, quite often the accompanying ME-109s, the Messerschmitts, you know, would break off and try and disrupt the attack of the RAF. And these dogfights, as we call them, were very chaotic affairs. The, the British machinery, in many ways, was superior. I mean, people you know, revel over the Spitfire. It's, it's got a slightly higher top speed than the Hurricane. It's slightly more maneuverable and, and overall probably was you know, a better aircraft, which could outmaneuver, outfight pretty much anything that it came across. But the real workhorse of the, of the RAF is the Hawker Hurricane. And these were still a fairly decent match for the, the Messerschmitts and everything else. So, you know, as you can imagine, the whole idea of it is to lock on from the rear onto an enemy fighter and to try and, and shoot it down. But that whole process, right, is really difficult. And particularly because these aircraft are fuel limited. If you think about where the German aircraft are coming from, they're having to cross the channel. They've got to have enough fuel to get back. So the actual time in the air that they can spend dogfighting is quite short. And similarly for some British squadrons as well, because unless they are based in the southeast of England, many of them are actually coming in from the Midlands. Right? So sometimes these dogfights, you know, in, the, in, in the movies, they can last for the best part of five minutes. Wonderful kind of scene for Hollywood. But in reality, sometimes these fights were only a minute or two long. And it was all about maneuverability, all about reactions, all about skill, and in many ways bravery as well. And you know, you get different success rates where on certain days there might only be one or two aircraft shot down, and other days you can get in well into the tens, right? You can get 20, 30, 40, even 60 on the highest end of the scale. But like I say, it wasn't easy for any of the pilots to be sure of going into battle to shoot one of these down, but the time that they had to do that was very minimal. If we're talking about you know, one of the, the reasons for Battle of Britain lasting and the RAF not capitulating, part of the reason was that these dogfights are happening over British waters and the British mainland. So if a pilot is unfortunate enough to have been shot down, as was the case, you know, they can bail out and probably return to service in a couple of days. Equally, the aircraft that are shot down, just because they're shot down doesn't mean they're not useful, right? They can be cannibalized for spare parts. You know, there's whole recovery teams that go around picking up bits of scrap metal. Now, the Luftwaffe doesn't have the same luxury, right? If they are shot down, they're shot down 
over Britain. They're shot down over British waters. So just in terms of the dynamics of the dogfight and the, and the overall significance of this, the fact that it's happening over Britain just gives the RAF that little bit of an edge. How significant was the Battle of Britain in the overall defeat of Germany? Not there and then, but in preparing for victory down the line. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. I think had Britain capitulated in 1940, it would have made the job of the German army much easier when it turned eastwards. It would have removed a significant thorn from the side of the German army in subsidiary theatres, so North Africa being the, the prime one. It would have removed the Royal Navy from being operational on the high seas and therefore given free reign almost to the German Navy at the time. So in terms of, of just keeping the war going and keeping it going on multiple fronts, stretching the already stretched Nazi war economy quite thinly for two, three, four years, allowed Britain to stay in the game. And then with the help of the United States, once it enters the war and it comes over in big numbers to the European theatre, that allows for the Allies as a whole to go on and achieve victory. Without the Battle of Britain, that probably wouldn't have happened. Mario, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. How and why history. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.